Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. The anger and pain triggered by everyday racist insults can lead to much poorer health. That's according to best-selling author Linda Villarosa. Her new book is called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. We'll discuss how discrimination is directly linked to health and what we can do about it. That conversation is coming up next after this news. I'm Leslie McClurg, in for Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. For decades, award-winning health journalist Linda Villarosa long understood that something about being Black has led to poor health outcomes for Black Americans, and that something was not race or poverty or lack of access to health care. Instead, racism itself is making people sicker. Her latest book is called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. And in it, Villarosa draws a direct line from centuries of discrimination and ongoing bias to the health of the Black community. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I want to start kind of going back in time. How old were you when you realized that your own family was treated differently because of the color of your skin? I would say it's long been a conversation in our family. Um, I grew up in Denver, so we were in an all-white community there, and it was clear to us that, you know, my mom is very open. My father was trained, you know, as a bacteriologist, but also worked as a social worker. So it was very clear to us, like I understood um, race, I understood racism, but it was still, even though I knew things had happened, Um, I did not quite understand, you know, because we were also a family of strivers of people who said, oh, if you just work hard, if you just do well and you do good work, um, you will be healthy. And so all of that was kind of in my head. So it took me a while to synthesize it. What about the welcome that you received when you moved from Chicago to Denver? Did that sort of wake you up or or, or make you aware of what your family was facing? Definitely. So, well, I, my parents, my grandparents came from Mississippi to Chicago and Chicago was a promised land to them. Both my parents grew up in Chicago and it had started to go downhill and the, where they were living in Inglewood. And part of it 
for my parents was we want to get the girls, my sister and me to a safer place. So my dad is really into the outdoors. So we packed up the car. They had bought a house in um, suburban Denver. We moved there so excited. I remember singing, you know, songs in the car and all excited. My sister and I would get our own rooms. Hmm. And then when we got there, we pulled up to the house and on the driveway was written in word, go home. And I just remember that it just wasn't the same. And my parents, I God bless them. They did everything they could to hide that from us and to kind of make, not my dad, he was really mad, but my mom to kind of make it okay. And to say, no, 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 we're going to be okay here. But both of my sister and I remember that, you know, we could never forget that we can never unsee it. And what about your first month in school? It didn't sound like that was a ton of fun either. Well, what happened was I later found out I came in third grade, my sister was in kindergarten and I, no one talked to me and it was so strange. And, you know, I had a lot of friends in Chicago and finally I had one friend who actually lives in the Bay area, Melody Stites. Thank you. And, um, she said to me, um, we had a, we had a, um, an assembly and the, you know, I think well-meaning people said, you're going to get your, we're going to get our first two black kids at the school. So don't say the wrong thing to them. Be really careful around them. So everyone was really scared to talk to us, to talk to me especially. And um, so they didn't speak. So it we broke the ice after that, but it was really um, hard. It was a difficult period. Sounds very trying at third grade if no one's talking to you. You, you've covered healthcare as a journalist for, for many, many years, first at Essence Magazine and, and then for the New York Times and still continuing at the New York Times. But when your own father was sick, you got a window into the issues that you had been writing about in the system, like, you know, from firsthand experience. What happened with your father and what did you learn from that experience? I was working at the New York Times newspaper as the health editor. So this was in 1999. And my mother was still in Denver and she called me at work and said, you need to come home immediately because your dad needs you. And I didn't quite, I knew he was ill, but I didn't know he had been hospitalized. So she said, come put on nice clothes, put your business card from the New York Times in your pocket and I'll meet you at the airport. I was pregnant, so I wasn't trying to get on a plane. and But I did, of course, for my father. So I got there. My mom was really dressed up. And my mother um, was a bookstore owner. But before that, she had been a hospital administrator. So, she, so I said to her, Mom, what is going on here? And she said, we need to go to your father now because he's in the hospital and they're treating him like, again, the N-word. So we went to the hospital and my father, who was trained as a bacteriologist, he is a scientist at heart and a kind hearted person, also worked as a social worker, very impeccably dressed. He really cared about how he looked and how he came off. He was really upset. He had colon cancer, but the way they were, he wasn't getting enough information. So he started getting agitated and he had a low, low form of dementia. So the more agitated they got, he got the worse they treated him. By the time I saw him, his gown was dirty. His hair was messed up. He was restrained to the bed. Oh. And I leaned down to him and I said, I, I went to hug him and he said, get me out of here. And what my mom did, my mom is really savvy. So what she did was we went home, we got 
pictures of him before he was ill. We got his medals. This was a veterans hospital. So we got a proof of his military service and his heroism in the Korean war. We um, explained to him, to them that he was trained as a scientist. He's a bacteriologist. If you explain things to him and you treat him with respect, he won't be agitated. My father passed away several months after that, but I never forgot that because I thought, why did we have to go through that? Why did we have to prove that he was respectable and that we're respectable just to get care and treatment that everyone deserves? Did his care improve? And did you stay at that hospital? And did, it, did the care for him improve after you oh. demonstrated sort of his, his nature? We did that, but it was only a temporary measure and it did get better, but we moved him to another hospital. My mom made some calls because it really, that was, it was so, that was such a sour taste to see him like that, that I thought, no, it's better for him to go someplace else. I can only imagine how heartbreaking that would be. When you started your career as a magazine writer at Essence and then in the 1980s, I think like many of us, you believed that poverty was really the primary driver of poor health. But over time, that has changed. Walk us through how and why that has changed for you. Well, I really started thinking that because that was how we thought. (laughs) That's how everyone thought at the time. What I remember is the Heckler report coming out. And so the Heckler report was in the mid 80s. And it was a report the first time that you really saw this compilation of studies that pointed to racial health disparities in America, particularly for black people in America. And but what you looked at is sort of like, oh, what is the solution? It wasn't giving more money, government money to this to the problem. And it, it was Black people should educate ourselves in order to be healthier. Hmm. I started thinking about that. Hmm, there's no, why isn't the government doing something about this? Then I met Dr. Harold Freeman. He had, it was in the early 90s, and he had recently uh, come out with a study in the New England Journal of Medicine about Black men in Harlem living fewer lives than men in Bangladesh. And I met Dr. Freeman. I had that. You said fewer lives, fewer years, right? You're saying that they lived. Fewer years, Uh thank you. Lower life expectancy than in this really extremely poor country. So I met Dr. Freeman and I was super all over him. Just please give me more information about this. I want to understand. This is a question of poverty, right? Poverty in America. And I was really peppering him with questions. And he just slowed me down. And what he said is you have to be careful to not use poverty as a proxy for race and race as a proxy for poverty, because they are not the same. Not all black people are poor. Not all black people are poor in Harlem. This is not just about being poor. This is about race. And I remember I am embarrassed, but I had to look up the word proxy. I didn't know what it meant. But I just remember that message, that first really firm message that do not do this. This is not just about poverty. And race runs through, you know, poverty and race are clearly connected in the United States. But this is about race and racism separately. And when you say racism, we use that term, we throw it around all the time. But my understanding after reading your book is you're really talking about the kind of microaggressions, the insults, the walking through the world and receiving certain treatment that then impacts over time, slowly, painfully your health, correct? Exactly. But it also includes macroaggressions. So there is, if you know the work of Dr. David Williams, he is a professor at Harvard and he created the everyday racism scale. 
So it has, it's a questionnaire that um, walks people through and asks them to report their, the kinds of racism or kinds of discrimination they've experienced. So it starts with sort of microaggressions. It's like when you get into an elevator, do people move away from you because they're afraid for their safety? Do you go to a restaurant and you get the worst seat? When you go to a store, do, they, do you get followed around? When you walk into a room, do people assume you're not as smart as they are? So there's those, but then there's also, have you been discriminated in housing by the police or at work? So the, the more of those you have, it's connected to poor health. So if you, re, and it's not just about black people, it's just that, you know, anybody can take this kind of discrimination scale, but when um, it's both been mostly done with black people and then the higher levels that you report, some studies have shown the uh, worst health outcomes you've had. How has racism impacted your own health? I don't exactly know, but what I do know is when I got pregnant in um, for the first time in 1996, I was still the health editor at Essence and I was in great health. I am really take health seriously. So I had, I'd been exercising up to my pregnancy. I ate right. I didn't, you know, use drugs or alcohol. I was really careful because I felt like a health role model. So, and I had a wonderful doctor who I could really trust. And so she would, we went to the, um, my, one of my appointments and she said, you have this weird thing called inner uterine growth restriction. It means that my baby wasn't thriving inside of me. I was put on bed rest. I was sent to a perinatologist. So the perinatologist, who I didn't know. Just a heads up, we're getting close to a break, so let's tie this one up. So the perinatologist said, what kind of drugs and alcohol are you using? What are you doing? Why aren't you taking care of yourself? And I was shocked. And now I think, is this related to my lived experience of being a Black woman in America? We'll discuss more and hear more about that and, and many other topics with Linda Villarosa, her new book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. Villarosa is a contributing writer to the New York Times, where she covers race, inequality, and health. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back. You are joined, or you are, excuse me, welcome back. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal, and we are talking to Linda Villarosa, whose latest book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. Villarosa is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, where she covers race, inequality, and health. And we want to hear from you as we talk about race. Have you ever experienced racism from a doctor or a nurse? Or are you a healthcare practitioner? Have you received training on unconscious bias? Did it help? We want to hear your stories. Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions the old-fashioned way to forum at kqed.org. Linda, I want to continue talking about you know women's health and maternal health as where we left off. But first, before we get there and kind of wrap up your story when we, when we move to, to women's health, I want to talk about these really pretty shocking medical myths that you uncover in your book and and that continue to kind of persist today. I'd love to start with Thomas Jefferson and the myths that he helped to perpetuate. perpetuate. Well, first, I want to say that my daughter is fine. (laughs) She was born at four pounds, 13 ounces. She could fit in the palm of my hand, but she's now a very healthy, smart, wonderful young adult. Wow. Um, That is tiny. Yes, so small. But I'm so glad she's Uh, doing well. Me too. Thomas Jefferson, when he was writing um, in some of his work, he would talk about, he talked about a lot of things, but it kind of buried deep into some of his writings. He talked about Black-white differences. And one of the things he said was that um, Black people have low lung function. So he called, you know, weak lungs. And I think what happened is what well, what historians think happened is scientists and others picked this up and doctors picked it up because he said it. And then th- this myth became embedded during the 1700s, 1800s, when slavery was still happening in the U.S. as a way to justify slavery. In other words, working hard in the fields all day seemed like it was a form of exercise to build up the weak lungs of Black people that were enslaved Black people. And then um, there was also this Dr. Samuel Cartwright who invented a machine called the spirometer, which measures lung function. Because he believed that Black people had lower lung function, 10 to 15% lower, It this idea that there needed to be a correction for Black people got embedded into this machine all the way to the present day. And I often think about that because uh, several years ago, I had bronchitis, And I went back, I went to the doctor and had a lung function test. I was fine, but I never got the results. I mean, I only got them from the doctor, but I didn't know at the time to ask if she corrected for race, which would have really annoyed me because I'm from the state of Colorado and from the Mile High City. So I have good lungs. So if I had a correction that assumed that I had 10 to 15% lower lung function, that would be the false information. But I, if I recall correctly, you did or do know that you had a race correction in a different medical procedure, correct? I do. I Recently, I had a race correction for kidney function. I had a kidney function test. And so I noticed that I had the race correction. It had my, my results from my doctor. And then it said, here's the correct, here's your reading if you're white. Here's the reading if you're black. And black was circled for me. So I was trying to tell a friend, she said, that doesn't still exist. So I we I made her turn on the camera to show her my, and this was probably six months ago. And how can those, you know, these race equations then 
affect your health. So let's say you have these 10 to 15 percent differences, changes in your results. And then I assume then that may lead, you know, poorer care or the wrong treatment, et cetera. Do you know then how these race equations or what the research shows in terms of how people are mistreated because of these corrections? I think there, well, I'm curious to hear if anyone out there knows about research into this. I've seen one really good article that talked about what happens when the kidney function race correction is in, is wrong, and it can keep people who are actually quite ill, Black people, off the list to have a kidney transplant. For just as for lung function, if your reading is incorrect, that means you could be getting the wrong treatment. You could be less, you could be either better or worse than your lung function test is showing. The point is, is that you can't, I mean, also the way you identify your race is self-identified. Well, let's go to a caller now. Let's hear from Alicia in San Francisco. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. I'm really glad to hear this on the radio. It's kind of been the topic that's been dominating my life for the last three months. Tell us your story. Uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer um, in February. And I um, went to a, a breast surgeon here in, in the East Bay. And that we... In, within in that appointment, um, we particularly touched upon the concept that I might have a very rare form mm. of breast cancer that tends to um, strike women, black women. And um, I perfectly fit in the demographic. And the presentation of my breasts, which included discoloration and swelling, perfectly fit within, it's called inflammatory breast cancer, perfectly fit within the presentation of, of that disease. But because I'm a black woman with, and I'm a light-skinned black woman, but still, she couldn't see the redness in my breast, which she should have been trained to see, seeing as mostly in black women. Um, and because of that, uh, she said I didn't have it. Oh. Normal breast cancer from diagnosis to metastasis, it takes years. But inflammatory breast cancer, or at least my case, it takes weeks. And because of that, I didn't start chemo right away. And because of that, my prognosis shrunk immediately. Um, wow. Yeah. And so had she said, no, yeah, this is inflammatory. And we have pictures of it at the time, and it looks exactly like um, the disease. Alicia. Yeah, it, yes, oh. inflammatory breast cancer. And then even a couple of days ago, I went to see a dermatologist um, because there are a lot of side effects with my, my treatment. And um, the dermatologist just didn't examine me fully. And my sister, who's also a doctor, I, I have to say my sister is a doctor. And, and when I walk into a room without a doctor, without her there, I'm treated horribly. I'm treated horribly. I'm treated like I don't know what I'm saying. Like when I ask for very specific tests, they, they tell me no. But the minute she's there, they answer all of my questions. They give me whatever tests I want. They, you know, everything changes instantly. I'm just uh, sitting here in disbelief. 
they talk more to her than me, but that's okay because at least they're doing what they need to do. But I went to a dermatologist a couple days ago, and she gave me a. She said, "Oh, it, you know, this is not a problem," and because I ha- I've now developed a heart condition, and we were thinking maybe that's due to an infection, or it could be due to my treatment, and we're hoping it's not my treatment, obviously. And so uh, we went to the dermatologist to see this, and she's like, "Oh no, it's nothing." Um, but the more we think about it, the more we think maybe it is something serious. And when I asked her about a very particular uh, disorder it could be that could have led to an infection, she said, oh, I examined this, 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 this in you. And I, and Paul looked at this, I'm like, you didn't examine half of these things. You uh, never looked at half of these things. Alicia, it sounds so painful to not be able to, you know, to be in a situation where your health is at risk and then also then not to be able to trust the system. I am so sorry. I wish you the best as you navigate forward and and may you start receiving treatment that is excellent and and turn things in the right direction. Thank you so much for for sharing with us this morning. I want to add that inflammatory breast cancer is more common in black women. It's hits at younger ages and it's um, highly aggressive. No one is clear exactly why. Uh, I want to say to you, Alicia, that I am so glad you have your sister. It is important for us to have advocates and also that um, to share that story of you not getting recognition because of your skin color. And that really is a thing. And it is a thing that I think there are growing numbers of medical students and providers who are receiving their education and training. They're trying to change that so that we don't go in with these, you know, with white skin as the baseline. Let's go to another caller. Anisha, I would love to hear your story as well. Anisha in Berkeley. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a story when uh, I was in college and I had fallen from the third floor of my dorm to the second floor landing. And I had heard a pop in my ankle and I just laid there, you know, because I was in shock first. And eventually people came and helped me and took me to the healthcare center there at UC Davis, where I was. Um, and the nurse there just looked at me and said, oh, well, you probably just sprained your ankle. Um, and I said, well, I heard a pop. She goes, well, it's just a sprained ankle. And I was like, okay, uh, all right, because I didn't know any better. I was in pain for weeks, no crutches, no pain meds walking around on what I found out, like, I don't know, in my 40s, when I turned 40, um, and happened to slip at work, so maybe 30 years, 20 years later, slip at work, and my supervisor at the time insisted that I go to the healthcare center, and I'm thinking, well, just a sprained ankle, right? And when I go um, to the Tang Center, they took me in, they x-rayed me, and they said, oh, you have a broken ankle, and you have previous buildup calcium deposits from an earlier break. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, you've had a broken ankle before. Oh. And, and I'm just thinking, this is why my ankle was never right again. It was never a sprain. It was a break. And to not give in to consideration when I said I heard a pop and I couldn't move, that they needed to do something more than just look me over look me over and send me back to my dorm. I mean, and the other thing was I saw a friend 
like later on in the dining commons who happened to be white and was on crutches and what happened to you? I twisted my ankle. I said, they gave you crutches? She goes, yeah, I got crutches and they gave me an ace bandage. And I'm like, wow, okay. Well, you and I must have different sprained ankles because you have crutches and I have nothing. Anisha, that is that is so heartbreaking to hear. Linda, I would love for you to comment. I'm I'm curious what you would want to say, or you know, this kind of seems to touch into the myths that you discuss about pain and sort of how doctors assume make assumptions about black patients that are not true. What do you think, Linda? Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened. That is I can hear the pain in your voice, and that is really wrong and unfair. And I'm glad that you um understand that. Well, the one of the other myth that I looked at from my 1619 project essay was the myth that started during slavery that black people have super high tolerance to pain. So that means we can be beaten and we can be whipped and we can work in the field from sunup to sundown. Um, we have immunity to emotional pain, which means that you can take our children away and hurt our family members in front of us and we don't feel it the same way. So fast forward to 2016, where there was a study of um, medical, white medical students, residents, and interns. And they, um, they were presented with myths, including the idea that Black people have higher pain tolerance than white people. And um, something like 40% of them, uh, some of them answered yes to at least one of the questions. Another one was whether Black skin is thicker than white skin. So they believed these myths. And and I don't think healthcare providers, even though we're hearing these horror stories, go into the the field to do harm. I think we're blindsided by these myths that have been floating around since for centuries that you cannot help but believe or you can't, that cannot help but seep into your care, even when you're well-trained and even when you're a kind person. And I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it is wrong. And I read in looking at some of these studies, one of them that hit me was they were talking about the, the how, how to describe pain was hand slammed in the door, but another one. And so the, some wow. of the you know, people asked said, Oh, black people don't feel that pain the same way. That just hurts no matter whose body it is. But another one was an ankle break. And so I remember that. And I remember that one of the studies, you know, found that black folks get less pain management for the, for the same kinds of injuries, including having your ankle broken. So I'm sorry. I am so sorry as well, Anisha. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope you will continue to share your story because it, it is quite powerful. Uh, to know and to see kind of inside the system. We can talk about these things in the sort of cerebral, but to really hear the heart of a story is is quite powerful. So thank you for taking the time to share your experience with us. Let's talk about one more uh, sort of kind of how we got here, going way back to J. Marion Sims um, back in the slavery days. Who who was that and what did what did he do? J. Marion Sims was long considered the father of mo- modern gynecology. So he was a, <clears throat> excuse me, an OBGYN in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and he was trying to perfect a kind of slave, a kind of surgery in the 1800s, um, and he performed surgery on enslaved Black women. And there was no <clears throat> pain management at the time. Sorry, I'm going to take a sip of water. There was no pain management at the time. So he was performing surgery without any pain medication. 
And there, until recently, <coughs> there were statues of him celebrating him. Yeah. Take your time, Linda. <laughs> <coughs> so anyway, now some of the statues, oh, wow, I think I have allergies, have been taken down, but still he's a person that harmed women during the time. And so he should not be celebrated. In Montgomery right now, there's an artist called Michelle Browder, and she's created this wonderful uh, monument called the Mothers of Gynecology. And it's for Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy, who were the enslaved women that Dr. Sims operated on. I listened to a, a news a news report on that, and it was such a powerful. There was a ton of people out marching, and the heart and the the enthusiasm that was shared around that when that when that sculpture was put up was was really quite quite profound. Uh, tell us about the Ralph girls. This was a story that just really hit me in terms of what, what happened not that long ago. So. The Ralph sisters were living in Montgomery, Alabama in 1973 with their family. And they came on the, they were 12 and 14, and their older sister was 17. And they came on the radar of the public health service. And at the time, there were a lot of Black people who were poor coming from other parts. It was kind of like the continuation of the Great Migration, but into Southern cities. So the public health service was sterilizing young women and men sometimes too. And so they got taken from their house, 12 and 14 and sterilized. It was wonderful that the good part about this was they had a social worker who was so outraged that she went to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which was brand new at the time. And Julian Bond was the president of it. So the two lawyers there got really fired up and filed a lawsuit on, on behalf of the Ralph family, um, the three sisters, to say, this is not fair. The mom didn't, didn't know how to read or write. So she signed an X on this form to get the girls sterilized, but she thought she was getting immunizations for them. So the Ralphs, their only time on an airplane was when they flew the family to Washington to testify in front of the Senate, which was great. And then it turned out they won the lawsuit and, and what got uncovered was 100 to 150,000 other people were sterilized under similar programs funded by the U.S. government. 100 to 150,000. That is absolutely shocking. We're talking about how racism affects health with award-winning journalist Linda Villarosa, whose latest book is called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. We will come back and join her in just a few minutes. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how racism affects health with award-winning journalist Linda Villarosa, whose latest book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. Thank you again, Linda, for being with us today. I want to get into some of the research that you uncovered that really demonstrates how racism is is affecting our health. Let's talk about in the 1990s, there was a study on on women's health, and it, it really underscored some of these issues. Talk about that study and what kind of questions it asked. It was actually the Black Women's Health Study. And the reason there is a Black Women's Health Study is because there was a famous physician health study, and then there was a famous nurse's health study. But when um, researchers in Boston looked at the Women, the nurses' health study, uh, only a tiny percentage of women who were in the study were black. So a group of researchers in Boston started a black women's health study. So it was about 60,000 black women. And they had been asking questions about diabetes, about preterm birth, about all, all kinds of things. And I'm part of the study myself. And it was wonderful. I love taking part in the study. But then around the same time I got pregnant, several of the people in the study got pregnant. They were all like in their 30s. And the only one who had a traumatic birth, whose child had to be go into the ICU, the NICU, was the Black woman. And so w- what they decided was to say, wait, we can't just do this, you know, look at these different things that are affecting Black women. We have to also ask questions about race. So they used a form of the everyday discrimination scale that I mentioned earlier, and they um, connected people who had higher instances of racism and discrimination in their lives had also had had more high, higher rates of certain diseases, including preterm birth. And could they prove it? You know, we've talked about in science, you know, there's there's like correlation. And it, 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 like, can you actually prove these things? Like, what is how hard is the evidence demonstrating that racism is leading to these diseases? The evidence is good, but this is hard to prove. I think the bet, the the other way it's been proven is through the idea of weathering. So weathering is a concept created by Dr. Arlene Geronimus at the University of Michigan in School of Public Health. What she believes and what I believe as well, many, and, and there's a growing awareness around this, is that something about the lived experience of being Black in America, or, well, I'll start with that, is causing the body to be prematurely aged. And how she did it was she used, again, asked the questions, but then also did measurements in, you know, in the experiment. So she looked at cortisol levels. She looked at um, blood pressure and she looked at heart rate as well as, you know, kind of these other diseases. And what her, the, the idea of weathering is that if just the way a house might weather the storm, I mean, the, a house might be weathered by a storm. So it would be like the shingles get knocked off when it's a, a tornado, the um, roof gets breaks, the windows break, there's the paint chips off. But um, so that's what happens to people who are treated poorly 
by discrimination. And then the flip side is that a house weathers the storm, and that is community, kinship, family, neighborhoods, and love can help protect you. And I think this is a really interesting, and it has come to the fore even more. Like Dr. Geronimus used to be kind of obscure, and she was often attacked in her early career. Right now, when COVID happened, and it turned out that Black people were getting COVID at younger ages and getting worse, um, having worse outcomes, more hospitalization, and more death, people turned to Dr. Arlene Geronimus to say, can you help us understand that? Right now, um, I just said hi to her yesterday to give her some um, support because she's writing a book about her ideas right now. And I'm really happy for that. That's fascinating, that idea of weathering, weathering in the sense that we're like deteriorating over time, but we can actually kind of pump ourselves up with, with the right things. Let's go to Guillermo uh, in San Leandro. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my phone call. I had experience in one of the hospitals here in the area, and I went for an emergency, uh, one of those walking clinics, and uh, I had a pain on one of my testicles, and it was really bad, and I can't even stand up. I walk into that clinic, and basically the doctor looked at me and says, oh, I'm sorry. I cannot treat you right here. I cannot see you, your skin. I, I don't want to touch you. And I'm, I'm going to send you to the emergency room, to the ER. Um, and I look in and I say, what up? Beep. And then I say, you know what? Great. So my wife came up. I'm very angry, too. And by that time, I mean, the pain was more than anything. And so we went to the ER to take care of me at the ER. Uh, we, I called my regular doctor, which is at this same hospital, who is a person of color, and she went so mad that she called the director of the hospital, and they, I believe they uh, dismissed this person out of the walking clinic. But that one happened to me. So now when I go to any doctor, my first question to doctors are, do you have any problems treat a person of color? Have you ever have a problem treating a person of color? Have you ever have a problem touching the genitals of a person of color? And they kind of look at me like, why are you asking me that question? Because I had this experience already. And I want to be sure that you, if I come to you, you will treat me like the same that you treat anybody else. I'm glad you asked that question, Guillermo. Linda, I think there's actually quite good evidence demonstrating that a patient who is treated by, uh, or a person of color who is treated by someone of color, that they have much better outcomes, correct? That is very true. And I'm, Guillermo, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And my book is specifically about Black people, but I think Dr. Geronimus taught me and I've learned along the way that it's this is, you know, being treated badly in society and in the healthcare system itself isn't unique to black people. It's just happened the longest and we've studied it the most and it's the most well understood. But discrimination or being treated the way you were treated and the way others have been treated and what we've talked about here is not unique to us. It hurts anybody. And in my book, I went, you know, I talk about the experience of a community, in, you know, Latinx community in um, the United States. And I also go to West Virginia, which is a state that's very white. But, you know, and I saw that mistreatment hurts everybody. 
Absolutely. We're talking about how racism affects health with award-winning journalist Linda Villarosa. Her latest book is called Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. We want to hear from you. We've had some fabulous callers so far. Have you experienced racism from a doctor or a nurse? Or are you a healthcare practitioner? Have you received some training on unconscious bias? Or do you work in healthcare and you're really trying to address the racism in your system? We would love to hear from you. You can call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or you can email out your questions to forum at kqed.org. One listener asks, what do you, Linda, recommend with regards to getting better health care as a black person? A person should not have to dress in their Sunday best or bring their credentials to get good health care. But it seems like this is what has to be done. Recommendations, Linda? I think part of what I, why I talk about this is because in, I believe that as black people, we just have to know, or people black and other people of color, we just have to know what we're facing. So it's good to go in, you know, you don't have to dress up like my mom suggested, but I think you do have to go in educated. You may have to go in with someone else like our caller um, did and just be vigilant. Don't expect don't expect the best, but also don't expect the worst so that you're so angry and defensive, but just go in with your eyes open, with your research with you, and um, at best with someone else, no matter who you are, being in the healthcare system, especially if something's wrong, is scary. And so I, I recommend that anybody that is getting medical treatment and care take someone with with them. But especially if you're a black person or another person of color, it's important to do this because most physicians aren't going to look like us. Another listener asks, why aren't these racism myths that we discussed earlier with Thomas Jefferson or Sims, the things that kind of perpetuated from, from those myths, why aren't these racism myths that doctors and health practitioners seem to be re- relying on, why aren't they eradicated? It seems like really bad science. Do you, Linda, know, you know, if there is some ways that these myths are being addressed in the healthcare system? I think, first of all, there's two things and they're both different. So the first thing is doctors are resistant to some doctors and other healthcare providers, not everyone, but are resistant to change. And so it's sort of like, well, this is the way I was trained. This is the way I learned. And so this is this is how it is. But what I'm really excited Um, about is a new um, sort of generation of doctors, nurses, midwives who are in training now. Many of them were politicized by what, you know, by Black Lives Matter and other political movements when they were in high school or when they were in undergraduate school. And now that they're in medical school, now that they're in nursing school, now that they're getting their MPH and public health or their training to be midwives, they are going in with a different kind of political or social justice sensibility. There is an, I want, I want to give a shout out to the center, the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine, which is a wonderful group of students at the University of California at San Francisco who are getting a joint degree at Berkeley. And please look up that name because I always forget if it's Institute or Center. But what they did was they went, they took a class in health equity and racial health disparities, and then they got excited. They formed their organization and they created a on their website this wonderful manifesto that says we need to stop teaching these myths in college and we need to not take them into our future as medical practitioners. Do you have hope that we can change this? 
I really do. And I look at your state. Um, I'm glad I'm speaking in California because what your state did was to say, to, to look at maternal mortality, which we're the only country where the number of women who die related to uh, birthing people who die related to pregnancy and childbirth is rising. And that we have three black birthing people are three to four times more likely to die or almost die. And it, education isn't always protective. A black woman with a master's degree is more likely to die or almost die than a white woman with an eighth grade education. What California did is improve care in hospitals to make sure if there's an obstetric emergency that there's all hands on deck, the tools are in place, there's protocols. When that happened, the number of women who passed away, birthing people who passed away dropped by 55%, but the racial health disparities stayed in place. So okay. now in California, if you are working with a birthing person pregnant or um, have, uh, delivering a baby, you have to have gone through some kind of anti-bias, anti-racism, implicit bias, or anti-racism training. Now that was even expanded starting this year in your state that all medical providers as part of continuing medical education have to go through some kind of training. I don't think all training is created equal. Some of it isn't great, but at least there's this this nod toward this reality that we have to do something different with our medical providers. This is a fundraising period for KQED Radio. So for more information on how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Leslie McClurg. That is that is quite fascinating and good good to be in California, knowing that there is some change on the horizon. Let's hear from another caller. Melvin, you're on the air from Walnut Creek. Melvin. Uh, do we lose Melvin? Looks like, looks like we we lost Melvin there. So hopefully he'll come back. Please call us back, Melvin. Uh, Linda, I would I would love for you to discuss. You know, you you mention in your book that Black Americans are the canner the excuse me, the, the canary in the coal mine. What what do you mean by that? I mean, I that is what when I learned about weathering, I learned about it for Black people. If we have been mistreated, which we is well-documented when we talk about J. Marion Sims, we talk about what happened during, you know, with Thomas Jefferson pushing around false myths that were picked up by physicians and scientists that happened 400 years ago. Then even after enslavement ended this, you know, mistreatment by society and in the healthcare system itself, we moved to the Tuskegee experiment, which was, you know, from the uh, 1930s to 1970s. Then the Ralph sisters were sterilized without permission. Then there's these studies that show that these things are still happening to us. Someone said, well, I understand why people are hesitant, black people and other people of color to go into the healthcare system because of Tuskegee or because of the Ralphs. I said, no, it's because of something that happened to them yesterday. As we've heard from our callers talking about what happened to them. And this is just a small cross section. This is rampant. So what I see is that I hope things are changing, but I see this through line. I see that it only, you know, Black people, we know that it's happened to us, but discrimination, being treated poorly hurts anybody, any marginalized group, anybody who is treated poorly in the healthcare system or in society, it takes a toll. There was an article just this morning on the cover of the Washington Post uh, online talking about Virginia's chief 
public health official, a guy named Colin Green, and he rejects the idea that racism is a public health crisis, which, according to The Post, actually leaves some people in Virginia pretty scared about their jobs. When you hear about health leaders, people in these very important, prominent positions taking these kinds of stances, how do you respond? I think that their time is ending and there is a movement. If the next generation of healthcare professionals and policymakers is not thinking like this person is, then that time is over. And one thing I mentioned in my book is this, um, I met the great Audre Lorde before she passed away. And I had this conversation with her. I was at Essence and she was visiting there. And I said to her, do you think racism is ending? Like, it feels like, and she said, girl, no, it is not ending, but you can tell it's starting to go out. And you can tell when things are going out, leaving, because they go out ugly. And so you have the kind of sort of, you know, a, debates that are happening, the kind of fights and people wanting to ban books or burn books and things like that, or squelch ideas and people angry and people saying like this person did that, you know, so many other people are calling racism, a public health threat, starting with the centers for disease control and ending with the American medical association and certainly the student groups. So this is an idea. His old idea is, is not valid anymore. And it's the end of his time. I'm curious, you know, given given all that, given all those organizations that you just mentioned who are really addressing this and how much we have turned our attention on this in the last few years, given what we learned, uh, you know, during the pandemic, do you feel like we're in a lot better position than we were, say, 20 years ago when you started covering these issues or quite a bit longer than that? When you started covering these issues, are we in a better position today or have we just kind of ripped off what was true during that entire time? I think that we have exposed what was true, but also more people are starting to tell their stories like what happened today. And what I like is in trying to get to this issue is the combination of evidence, which exists, there's so much of it, and storytelling, because both are important. I um, want to share this experience where my book was reviewed in the New York Times book review and in the Washington Post. And both of the reviewers were, you know, these really wonderful writers who were talking about my book, but then each of them took a minute and told their personal stories. Um, There was the first, the one in the New York Times book review was a black woman who said she had a really terrible experience with her birth, even though she had read some of my other articles and knew to go into the healthcare system vigilant. The other gentleman, his wife almost was hemorrhaging and their baby was had a stillborn. They, The couple was treated badly. These are book reviews and people went out of their way to share their personal experiences and to say, this is real. So this is real. People, this is real. This is absolutely real. Thank you so much for bringing this into the... In- into the light with us this morning. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Linda. We've been talking about how racism affects health with award-winning journalist Linda Villarosa, whose latest book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Alexis Madrigal. Today's segment was produced by Grace Wan. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.